What's happening, Gorilla Social Workers? Welcome to the Gorilla Social Work Podcast with that soulless ginger abortion, Jeff Moore and yours truly, Mace Warren. Jeff and I are both licensed clinical social workers who specialize in providing forensic psychotherapy to clients involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, today's a bit different podcast than normal. We were actually interviewed with one of our pals from up north, uh, Matt Barnes, from the Social Work Me podcast. Please check him out on any of the platforms that you listen to your podcast, you listen to us. Uh, really excellent episode. Um, this podcast is brought to you by the Social Work Me podcast, so please check him out. Give him a five-star rating. Give him a subscribe. Um, it's, a, it's a really good discussion. Uh, you can kind of hear some stuff in the audio because we're being interviewed over Zoom, but you get it. All right. We hope you like it. Have a good one. Have you guys been using Zoom for your episodes with with guests and stuff or no, we haven't for the last little while we haven't had well, actually I guess you shouldn't say that. We've had we've had a couple of guests. Um our our there's Jeff Kelly. We we've had a uh we interviewed a former client and <clears throat> I think uh since we started recu- recording without Justin, how many how many other guests have we had? I'm just Derek. I think just Derek. Oh, okay. I don't. Yeah, I can't think of anybody that we've. No, we haven't. It's just been Derek. And then and then we. Uh, oh wait. Uh, we invited the Cincinnati like, people. Oh, that's right. And in both of those cases, we actually recorded off site. We went to like uh, um, the sheriff's. The sheriff's. Uh, the the correctional facility. And then, um, and then we did the other one out of our office. Nice. That's right. Yeah. The, the gruesome newsome. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jamie, the gruesome newsome. Yeah. Yeah. She, she'll be, uh, she's coming back in July. She's, she's going to do another podcast with us. Then Beautiful. Too. Glad so, that nickname's spreading. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, it's so it's so weird. I've been listening to your guys' show for a couple of years, and then just to see you and talk to you and have this opportunity is pretty cool. Um, right on, man. Do, do we look like what we sound like. I honestly, I thought Mace. I thought you were Jeff, and I thought oh. I thought it was reversed here. So it's uh, it's tripping me out a little bit. But you, you thought the deep voice went with the big muscle guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the and the uh, the high pitch annoying voice went with the ginger. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> that makes <Yeah>. sense. <laughs> well, we bag on each other both. Yeah, yeah. either way, yeah. that works itself out. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. So what's going on in Utah? It's uh, you guys, jazz fans, or I mean. I'm not really a basketball fan, but if you're going to make me pick a team, yeah, jazz fan, for sure. I'm still yeah. a little hard up. I uh, have some heartache over the 1997. Don't, don't even talk about it. I know, bro. Don't even talk where Jordan pushed off? Yeah, when Jordan pushed off of Brian Russell. So, Matt, this is like a this is like a, a Utah – this is like a Utah uh, – uh, not a legend, like a lore in, or – Infamous or – yeah. Yeah, what's the opposite of legend? Like something that is – 
perpetually held in time, but is <laughs> but is held in infamy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. the opposite? I don't know. It's just it's, it's like nine uh, eleven, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's quite like nine eleven. Um, but yeah, no. A lot of hearts broken, though. Yeah, yeah, and you can see it. Have you watched that documentary? Um, it's called The Last Dance. It's yeah, about it's the, so okay. good. So, so Jordan talks about that where he pushed off Brian Russell big time. And look, here's the thing though, is like leading up to that, we were in high school at this point. Like I was a junior in high school, I think, and, or maybe a sophomore, but it was, it was just traumatic because up until that point, like we get out of these things every year and it would say, this is our year. This is our year. And then finally I was like, oh no, 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 this really is our year. We have like the best team ever. And then that happened and I was like, oh no. And I remember it was particularly traumatic for me because my dad took a dumbbell, a, a weighted dumbbell, <laughs> and threw it through our TV. And I was and I was like mortified. I'm like, whoa, well, hold on a second. That was he a nice, really did that. Oh yeah, he, he did that. And I would have I would have had to have been a freshman if not before that. He threw it through it. And I was like, so that's ever imprinted in my mind. And so ever since then, I've been like. I've been like a half fan of the Jets. Yeah. Like, it, it's too dangerous to fully commit yeah, emotionally. Just kind of yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. When the mailman missed that crucial free throw, I forget what game, game three. Like memory, man. Yeah. 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 That was, uh, that was just disappointing altogether. That whole series. So Wait, are you, are you a jazz fan? How, I you just have like an insane recall. Of- I am right now, to be honest, because the Raptors are, are not playing and I really want to see them crush Kawhi Leonard because, well, you guys know if, if you follow the Raptors at all, that he helped us win a, a big championship a couple years ago. Uh, and then he just jumps ship over the Clippers. So got I just want to see him for a little bit of, yeah. Vengeance. Yeah. So yeah, vengeance. Yeah. That's always good. I like to be motivated by revenge. That basically fuels <laughs> yeah. my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> it's healthy. But you yeah. guys up in up in Canada, you guys are are more like uh the big hockey fans, right? For sure. And uh yeah. we just had a devastating blow with the Leafs. <clears throat> Leafs are up three one against Montreal, and then they just completely shit the bed and lost in game seven. And so it was an early exit for for Toronto fans. Man, you think being up three to one, you'd you'd have it in the bag. That's what you would you would think. But when you've been a Leafs fan for for a long time, you just you don't hold your breath anymore because it's just <laughs> you just know disappointment's coming. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. There, there's a there's a one of my favorite quotes of all time was stolen by a hockey player. So that you miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people think that's Wayne Gretzky. That's t- actually Lee Harvey Oswald. So. <laughs> I thought I thought that was uh, Michael Scott quote. Lee Harvey Oswald. Did I? I I'll, I'll tell that joke sometimes to the students, and they're like, "Oh, I'm like <laughs> too soon." Like, well, well, you've already said something worse than I did with the 9/11 joke. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now we're even. Yeah, yeah, yeah we even it out. All right, sweet. You guys are are no stranger to to maybe the controversy do you ever get any feedback on the show like crossing lines or people hurt on things or does that does that ever happen not really what like so um kind of early on in getting guerrilla social work off the ground we we sort of had some like sort of loose 
rules around like what we'd talk about. We basically just limited it down to that. You're not going to really catch us saying the F word, but like beyond that, we kind of just say whatever and nothing's really come back on us. I suppose the C word, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> F word and up. Yeah. Yeah. F word and beyond. Yeah. But other than that, it's kind of the old part. I think the only thing that we got feedback on was, um, what were, I think we were talking about, um, that, there was a, a that study that um, that fake study that was sent out. It was um, it spawned the uh, the dear colleague letter or whatever the dear. It was the one where they said that one in four women uh, who attend university will will uh, be victims of sexual assault. Mm. Like the methodology behind that, if you remember, was like basically they they sent out a survey and asked, "Has this happened? Has that happened?" Right, and right, right, and right. the researchers identified what what had happened to them as sexual assault or not sexual assault. So obviously, like the methodology behind it was a little. I mean, you, you know, end up with bigger numbers, right, 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 right. So the one in four, which seemed kind of astronomical, I think we we just talked about some counter arguments to that. Not that we were making the counter argument to it, and and uh, uh, I think a, yeah, I don't know. I think they're a fan. I just am going to assume that they're a fan, and they said yeah. The way you guys talked about that wasn't great. But aside from that, we haven't really, yeah, we haven't really gotten anything but pretty good feedback. Yeah. Except for, except for the people who li- like us and they give us good feedback and then they give us four stars. Like, dude, <laughs> what a dick. Take those. Yeah. yeah. Just, just don't even rate us at that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, Keep what those four you, stars. Have you been, uh, as cancel culture come your way at all? I've honestly, I've been fairly paranoid about that. So I've kept it pretty PG so far. Um, but I just listening to you guys, I love how free you guys talk and you're obviously buddies. So that's kind of nice. And that's one of the fallbacks of just being a single host is there's not that banter to have. So, um, that's partly why I like listening to you guys and and just hearing the camaraderie and, you know, it's kind of nice to, to hear male social workers too. I, I have zero friends in the field. Yeah. Um, like guy friends. Right. So yeah. I don't get to do this kind of like talk about work and, and sort of be on the same level. The closest I have is a, is a buddy that's a PO. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just looking forward to shooting the, the breeze with you guys and, and learning about what you do. Cause it sounds like you guys have an awesome uh, practice going in Utah. Well, yeah, appreciate that, man. And, and yeah, it's uh, it is nice being friends mm-hmm. uh, to be able to do this. Cause I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't feel stiff, you know, or just kind of the stilted conversation, you know, we've like, you know, talk shit back and forth a little bit. Plus we have things, you know, similar experiences and then, you know, working under the, under the banner of the same company definitely helps with that as well. And yeah, flying solo like yourself, you, you, you kind of have to be on the whole time. There's times where I'll, I'll get, you know, maybe, two minutes into a monologue and then my brain's got to rest. I'm like, Mace, pick up the baton and run, dude. I, <laughs> I got to think for a minute. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff, I think does a good job balancing. Cause I never shut up ever. <laughs> like I, I, I get into, I have to tell, like I have to, Jeff and I present together quite a bit too. And um, we'll, we'll do trainings together as well. <clears throat> and I, and a lot of times I'm like, all right, dude, you gotta, you gotta interrupt me. Cause, cause I, and I'll, I just will go, 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 go. I've never, you know, that whole skill of 
learning to be comfortable with silence. They talk about that <laughs> yeah. as being a you know a therapist. I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. It's like I remember somebody said, yeah, wait, wait like a seven seven second. Give it seven beats before you fill that gap. Oh, that's like, a long time. I know. Mm-hmm. I'm like one and a half, and I'm like. Okay, so, <laughs> I, which I don't know if that makes me horrible, but man, it is, it's rough. So yeah. it's, a, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good balance. I, yeah, we appreciate that. That's awesome. How do you, how do you guys know each other? Well, we uh, went to high school together. I'm a year ahead of him mm-hmm. and we were, I mean. Shout out to Ogden High. Yes, yeah, right. Go Tigers. Go Tigers. <laughs> uh, he, Home of Buddy Ravel. And then like after, uh after high school, a couple of years go by. And then as we're all in college, a bunch of us ended up living in the same apartment buildings and which was bonkers, tons of adventures, just ruining that place. Yeah. yeah. I'm amazed that, that they Thanksgiving didn't... dinner. Yeah. Yeah. That was, oh. that was an awesome. So we, yeah, we lived in apartments that were across a hallway from one another. And I mean, wackiness ensued. Everything that you can imagine six bachelors doing in their free time in college, you know, uh, we did. And then some, it was, yeah, and then it was some. I'm, I'm often amazed. Like when we have, you know, a few colleagues that we, um, that we do things with every now and then we tell them stories about, you know, stuff as we were growing up and, uh, we'll tell them these stories and they're like, how come you guys aren't in prison? Yeah. Like, That's <laughs> yeah. a good question. Man. I, don't, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> luck. 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 yeah, exactly. And then as you guys are in college, are you all in the social work program or, or that kind of came later? It came later. I mean, uh, Mason, were you a sociology major? Yeah, I was. Then you were like, wow, I can do nothing with this. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So Mace was, he got a job working at a, a group home as line staff. And uh, I was kind of on my own parallel path uh, doing, I was working at the, the halfway house that we all work at now and also working for like a diabetes and endocrinology clinic, helping like mental health and physical exercise with uh, diabetic folks. And Mace uh, was going through grad school at the time and uh, was needing to do a research project and some of the, the, uh, some of the interventions in, like combining physical fitness and, and, uh, mental health, uh, you know, Mason and I have been spitballing some ideas about it and, and he convinced me to come apply to work at the group home he was working at and, uh, and in, in going in on his research project and then kind of from there it just took off. Yeah, and then wackiness ensued. Again. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Is this a group home like you with youth kind of violence? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ju- uh, juvenile sex offenders. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That's how I got my start as well, working in group homes um, with uh, violent offenders as well. Not so much sexual offenders, but just sort of generalized offenders of different crimes and substance abuse, mental health issues. So I think it's the best way to get get started in the field. Did you get started as like as like a as like line staff working? Was uh, it more of like a child and youth work position? So and it's that that's a that's a grind. If you can hack it 
working at a place like that, you can do about anything else in social work. I mean, that's a true test and mm-hmm. you'll have every curveball thrown at you and like stuff that you'd never, never get in an educational setting or just a private outpatient clinic. Like shit's wild in those group homes. Yeah. I know. It, yeah. I, I think 100%. it teaches you, I think it teaches you whether or not you can hack it, like working with this, right. this population. It's it, that, although that job line being line staff. And then, I mean, I was promoted pretty quickly and, and then became a, a therapist. I, I was originally, I went to school. Um, I, I was going to be an attorney and then I had to be part of a, a murder trial. And ever since then I was like, Oh yeah, attorneys are scumbags. I can't do that. So then I, then I went back and started working in social work. So the, no offense against attorneys, by the way, <laughs> but except for the jerk ones. So, uh, yeah. but, um, but yeah, that was one of the funnest jobs I've ever had. Oh, that and Burger King were like, <laughs> <laughs> those were fun jobs, man. Those were a, a riot. Those yeah. Hilarious. Absolutely. Yeah, when I was, or sorry, you go, Jeff. I was just going to ask you how, how, how long did you work in that group home? I, yeah. So I did that kind of the f- end of my undergrad. I was living with four buddies going to university and all my roommates were in accounting finance, like totally separate from the psychology world that I was doing. So I would, I'd go work in the group homes. I, I did it for a couple of years and uh, not always with them, but come home and they'd be like, Oh, what happened today? Like, tell us some, you know, some crazy stories. Yeah. You know, my, <laughs> my first day on the job, uh, getting a brick thrown at me. You know, one one weekend, the first time a kid tried to stab me with a protractor. Uh, (laughs) It's good to hear that things are about the same kind of Canada, U.S., like wherever. Yeah, yeah. there's lunatics everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, get a brick thrown at you and stabbed with a protractor. Yeah, it's that's uh, sounds about right, man. (laughs) Yeah, there there was a uh, I I listened to a podcast uh, uh, that's it's called uh, Canadian True Crime, and and I I was I was it was a, a recommendation, I think, from another podcast that I like. And anyway, it was, I just listened to it and I was like, Canadian true crime. I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be pretty tame, you know, but it's like just as gnarly as here. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. But yeah, it's not that different. They get after it in the great white North. Yeah. It seems, it seems like, it seems like, uh, I, I don't know if things calm down when it's like really cold, which seems weird. Like, mm-hmm. like you got to be in the mood for murder, you know? Too, right? Yeah. 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 The, the crime goes like, up ah! in the heat. Yeah. It's nice and warm. Let's get some yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to smoking, folks. It's a hundred degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked uh, when I finished my master's. I my wife and I moved up to the Yukon, which is like pretty north in Canada. I don't know how good your geography is, but like north of BC, um, and it sounds north and cold. It, does, yeah. it is. It is, and uh, it's like eight months basically of of winter. Like by oh. mid May, things are starting to kind of warm up a bit, and then you know middle of July, it's twenty hours of sunlight. So I think the crime like it compensates itself because there's so much. Yeah, yeah, like daylight. Like how far north they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'd be out camping. Um, I'd be, you know, fishing in the canoe at two in the morning and, and it looks like it's, you know, seven o'clock at night. Wow. Uh, so I think the crazy. crime sort of like the winter, they hibernate. And then when there's that 20 hours of light, it's like, let's, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Dang, man. So where, where are you now? Where, where I'm in, uh, in Sarnia. Um, it's right across the, the bridge from, um, from Michigan. Okay. Well, not okay. too, 
Yeah, from Port Huron is kind of the closest city um, okay. in, in the state. So we're not too far from from Detroit. Okay. Uh, have, have you have you, uh, you ever been to Canada before? No. Nope. Oh, okay. I, I've only gone once, and it was in, uh, I think, Toronto is where I went. Mm. Is that near you? Is that I'm like you, two, two hours south of Toronto. Okay. It, it, is Toronto kind of close to the Niagara Falls? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you got it. That's where I went. And I noticed one thing. And, and so, uh, I don't know how much we talk about this, but I'm, I'm like a candy freak, Matt. So everywhere we go, like it's always annoys Jeff. We'll get, we'll, you know, uh, be rolling into a city for whatever reasons. And I'll always be like, Hey, we got to stop at the gas station. He's <laughs> like, for what? I was like, I gotta get candy, bro. He's like, I, I'm just a candy fiend. And in Canada, the candy, it's like they don't have big bags of candy. Everything is like, at least in Toronto, I noticed all the all the candy bags were small. And I was like, dude, Americans suck so bad. I, was say that's we're all I, I know, which is fine, but I'm just like, I had to buy like several bags of candy to <laughs> satiate my... Like everywhere else understands portion control. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh. <laughs> I want the five-pound bag. <laughs> probably a Canadian thing, but, you know, and it's changed because of COVID probably. But back in the day, you used to be able to go buy like individual candies. Like one cent, five cents. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. So, I, I remember, I remember like that. that? Yeah. yeah, we had that back at... Uh, it was... Jen, like Jen Lee's market that was over. That's Remember right. that? And then yeah. that guy got shut down because he, he had the bomb egg rolls though. And then he got shut down because he's Sounds selling beer. cigarettes to kids. But this beer is sick, anyway. Both, so, yeah. probably. And then yeah. probably then some too. Yeah. But yeah, that That's was. I got it. Yeah, that, <laughs> <laughs> that was. Yeah, that was always fun back in the day. Yeah. Hey, speaking of COVID in Canada, are you guys still pretty pretty locked down up there? Yeah. Yeah, we're. People are calling because we live in Ontario. People are calling calling it on terrible because uh, <laughs> up until about a week and a half ago, we couldn't even go golfing. Really? We wow. were the only place in the world, the only province, the only living place that it was illegal to go golfing. Yeah, um, I, heard, I heard some crazy stuff. Like if you fly in there, you have to quarantine for 14 days. Then right. you have to run an obstacle course, get a COVID <laughs> test, turn it in underwater without getting it wet. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. So, I mean, obviously I'm embellishing, but, but it sounds pretty, pretty restrictive. Do you guys have any light at the end of the tunnel up there? Yeah, I think um, they're doing this tiered system based on how many people are vaccinated. So we've been really lagging with our vaccines compared to you guys. Um, so we're hoping by midsummer to be kind of back to restaurants open, gyms open. Like it's been illegal to get a haircut for months. Illegal? What happens? What, what happens if you violate that law? If you get a haircut, what happens? On on paper, there you'll get an eight hundred dollar fine. Oh. Um, but I have not heard of anybody actually getting that for getting a haircut. Okay. But there's a lot of fear fear tactics right now and just gyms being closed huge fines for for people defying the rules like thousands of dollar fines that sucks i wonder how much those fines are enforced you know it'd be so much more effective that like to broker a deal with the 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 salons you know and and just like somebody comes in for a haircut, just give them the shittiest haircut ever. Like <laughs> mess their head up. Like I'm like, yeah, see, yeah. they follow the rules. This is what happens? Follow the rules, eh? 
right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that would be, that'd be what, or, or if you, if you go to the gym, like, I don't know, how would you get somebody to the gym in a practical way? Like as they're walking in, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Have to come back to that. Give them an injury. Throw a dumbbell, dumbbell at them. Yeah. There you go. Like, not like Mason's dad through the TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but things are good with you guys though in utah you guys wide open back to kind of a normal or yeah, i don't think we ever really shut down utah's like i mean it, it's there was like a two of, weeks period there where things were kind of yeah kind of so then after that it was i didn't i mean I, restaurants shut down and the gyms yeah. did for a minute yeah you know, that's I, true. I, I built a home gym real quick just to kind of get by but that was max a month though yeah and then i was back in the gym yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sweat Utah stayed everybody. really yeah. open quite a bit. Like, and I mean, some people hate that. I, I honestly loved that we stayed more open than other places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you guys have the same vaccines up there, then, man? I, th- I think so. We like, got the Moderna, the Pfizer, the yeah. AstraZeneca, but I, I think that's kind of the main ones. You don't have the Sputnik vaccine? No, not yet. Is that coming? No, that's that's <laughs> the one that's in Russia. I love, oh, I love okay. the. Yeah, remember how we talk about? Yeah, yeah, they they they, called it Sputnik. I'm like, like, yeah, scoreboard. We got it. You got to space. You beat us to space. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's things are decent though, man. Yeah, we don't see us wearing masks right now. (laughs) What's that? You'll see Mason and I wearing masks right now. Yeah, yeah. We are are less than six feet apart. Yeah, in it was it was kind of crazy. This is how this is how like exposed we were. In June of of twenty twenty, when things were red hot, right? Everything was red hot. Uh, Jeff came to a birthday party over at my house, um, and and had just rolled with a he. So Jeff's a Brazilian jiu jitsu black belt, and he was at uh, Westside Academy. Shout out to Westside, and, and he had just rolled with a bunch of mongrels and literally got their sweat in his mouth and all over his face. One of which. We reported to him later on that day that he had tested positive for COVID, yeah, right? Yeah. And then everybody, and then, uh, yeah, he was over at my house. And of course, me and him made out, kidding. But <laughs> like, I mean, we were just right next to each other. And yeah, no mask, no nothing. And everybody was fine. Everything was fine. So, well, was yeah, that, we, we we dodged some, some bullets, I suppose. I, yeah. I was worried that I <clears throat> would have killed somebody's grandma at his family's party. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, man, my fingers were crossed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Inheritance, baby. Yeah. <laughs> well well, yeah like uh i don't know should we have a bit of a serious talk for a couple minutes and absolutely yeah yeah Yeah, Yeah. okay because i there's stuff i I really want to learn from you guys too i re-listened to that uh your episode about porn um Mm -hmm. so got a few things out of that that would love i would love to bring up but today's kind of we're going to talk about forensic psychotherapy and I know you guys work with a lot of different types of offenders, but if we can, just kind of focusing on sexual offenders sure. and talking a little bit about treatment and therapy, because I think that's uh, that's a really interesting topic. Um, maybe to start off, can you talk a little bit about Alpha Counseling, what, what you guys are all about, who you service, where you're at, uh, a little yeah. bit of the ins and outs? Yeah, so Alpha um, is the, the largest provider in, in Utah for uh, forensic psychotherapy and, and justice-involved clients. So really what we define that as is anybody who's involved in the in the criminal justice system, and this is for adults, um, and uh, anybody who's criminally involved 
and also usually mandated to treatment for that criminal involvement. So um, we, uh, our specialty is working with uh, adult sex offenders and those who have been convicted of, of a sexual offense and have been uh, court mandated to seek treatment. And then also uh, the other specialty that we focus on is substance use. Um, so those, obviously with the substance use disorder, there's a lot of, um, inter, you know, cross sections with the criminal justice system, obviously. And uh, so that's, and really, but our big emphasis is um, providing cognitive behavioral therapy services to anybody who is dealing with the, the criminal type behaviors, any type of criminogenic risk and, and kind of treating those. So I miss anything there. No, that's about right. Kind of it, is that what you wanted to know? Yeah. 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 And yeah. you guys do group and, and individual counseling. Is that, that's the case, right? Oh yeah. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Our, our groups are uh, psychoeducational uh, in nature and um, yeah. Individual therapy follows like a, a set of parameters that were set forth by the sex offender task force. I'm, I'm one of the board members on the task force. Uh, it's been kind of nice being able to sort of see behind the curtain a little, but yeah, the there, at least with the sex offense population, there's kind of some guidelines that any, any treatment provider that's serving clients convicted of a sex offense has to follow. And, uh, that's, I mean, I don't know how interested you are in, in the, the, the guidelines, but it's like kind of a, a minimum of 18 months in the program, a client, you know, start to finish. And uh, while they're in the program, uh, the idea is to assess where their risk is. We have some, we can get into risk assessment if you want at some point. And then of course, through, through the course of treatment, uh, specifically identify risk factors specific to the client and respond in a way to, to, to lower that again, based on sort of their top presenting risk factors. And, you know, we have a, a slew of methods for doing that and ways of getting like kind of outside verification of compliance, you know, polygraphs and things like that. And, you know, be, then before, again, I'm real general with you, man, but like uh, before a client uh, is given a high five and told them to have a nice life. We make sure that they're <laughs> low risk for a period of 90 days minimum. And, and, uh, as far as like the changeable risk factors and, you know, pass an exit polygraph to show that they've been acting in accordance to what they've been saying. And then, and then, uh, off they go. Hmm. That's a, that's a real, that's a, yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, um, prior to being a therapist, I was in child protection and uh, so obviously working with sexual offenders, looking at risk from the child's perspective, but sometimes in unique situations, we could apply for special needs funding. And I remember one client, we got funding to send him to do a phallometric test. I had, oh, yeah. no, I had no idea what that, what that was. <laughs> and the idea of it is still sort of hard to wrap my head around. Um, we don't do polygraphs. <laughs> Did you hear the play on words there? No, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but he came, you know, this is just one case, but he came back with no, like, distinguishable preference of attraction. I don't know if I'm wording that right, but basically he was attracted to elderly women and men and prepubescent boys and girls. That's, and, that's a pretty risky dude. 
Yeah. Yeah. It w- yeah. So it was sort of eye opening. Um, is that something that you guys do, Phallometric testing? Or so yeah, we we uh, so Je- Jeff and I were actually trained on that. That's a really funny story. If we ever have time to talk about that again, <laughs> yeah. getting trained in that. Um, and so. I don't know how it is in Canada, but in Utah, um, so there's some rules that kind of govern how that test is conducted. And it, it um, at least in my opinion, limits uh, the validity of, of the test itself. And so, you know, so essentially what, what they're doing is uh, you put a, what's called an idiom gallum gauge around a person's penis, and then you're measuring blood flow beyond uh, to their penis, which could only be explained by arousal. Um, and that gauge is intended to measure that. Now there's two, two kind of, uh, triggering mechanisms that are going through this. So one is, is that they're listening to a script and the script is essentially just a guy telling you a story. So it's like him, you know, talking about a fantasy, talking about, uh, the identified other individual that's, that's part of this. And then, and then also, um, you are supposed to see a, a visual prompt as well that's on this. And, and, um, but because of the limitations in Utah, they don't allow for the visual prompts. So you only have the audio. And there are some controls that, that kind of help us determine whether or not a client is paying attention or not. So we ha- they have a, a breathing gauge, which, you know, if they're doing some really weird breathing, um, and also there's a, there's a, a button gauge, which is basically measuring, there's a series of beeps throughout the script that the client needs to press the button. And it's usually one, if it's like a, a cooperative, uh, scenario, and then two, if it's more of a forceful scenario. And then the other one is they have an idiot, uh, the, uh, galvanic skin response that's on their fingers, all of which is trying to measure you know, are they trying to use countermeasures to offset or they, they call it response interference um, that to make sure that they're paying attention to this. And my criticism of that, I suppose, would be that without the visual response, it becomes difficult. But then the other thing, and I don't know if you noticed this, but like if you listened to so, so I listened to um, Jeff and I used to play this game where we'd get the first line of the script and then the other person would have to guess it. And Jeff got really good at it. Unfortunately. So, yeah. <clears throat> Hundreds of PPGs later. Um, but the one that was like the adult appropriate one was like the least provocative of them all. Like it, yeah, it just yeah. seemed, it seemed like just, just totally nonsensical. Like, we meet in a meadow and exchange vows. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I look into her eyes and we touch souls. I mean, it, it wasn't like that, but it, it's down that line versus the other one, you know, which was like, I saw his wet lip. You're like, geez, dude. Yeah, and yeah. so, like, I would just say in terms of, like, the the tone and the description and the words used, the, the other ones were much more sexualized, in my opinion. It just felt like if, if you were just – sexually hyperactive in general those ones would trigger it just more the than words themselves yeah right? yeah yeah and, and this is kind of a, a second point to that it was also actually quieter for some reason oh yeah for sure real one which yeah. is strange but yeah yeah so i don't know it's but, yeah, i think there was around a 30 percent response rate that we that we found uh, that that number sounds right maybe between 30 and 40 percent as far as actually producing a, a valid yeah 
um, major. So anywhere between 60 and 70% of our tests, we couldn't even use. They were, they were useless. And so we've actually moved on from that examination to a, a much more practical examination that also isn't as gross, um, called the ABLE assessment for sexual interest. And that's a computer-based questionnaire that has, uh, that they do look at images, um, <clears throat> no nudity. Um, and they are providing a, a, a personal opinion essentially of how sexually interesting or non-interesting the, the images that they're looking at is. Right. Mm-hmm. Cool. And having that kind of data must just make, take a little bit of pressure off doing those risk assessments. Um, I know here, like we don't, to my knowledge, we don't do polygraphs and a lot of the offender risk to reassessments are sort of client reports is, is basically the data they're using, but to have this kind of, you know, high tech stuff to, to input into those assessments, that sounds like it, it must really help you guys. Well, so, well, yeah, yeah. I, and I guess I didn't realize that maybe that was a unique thing. It, so you don't have anything besides client self-report to help inform your treatment planning? Like there's questionnaire and I, and I don't do this work. Um, so I'm just kind of going off what I've collaborated with, with other therapists and, and things that in, when I was in child protection, um, like we would get the, the risk assessments. And from what I could see, it was sort of like a 10 session synopsis of their their work with the client and what they're reporting and and any new instances of uh criminal behavior um so over a period of time so you do have kind of their you know that pattern to look at but okay the phallometric testing was rare we had to get special needs funding for that gotcha yeah well i'd say Overall, I don't know how much you're missing out on those on the phallometric testing. Like, it, it, it's good that the one case that you had with that provided a a valid response because most of the time we have invalid non-responders. In other words, the, or no, no, valid non-responders. In other words, the the test was valid. There was no indications of the response interference and like they weren't attempting to game the system, but then they just didn't respond. And honestly, the conditions aren't really set up for it. I mean, like a lot of times I would light a candle, you know, (laughs) play some, play some Kenny G. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of times these, these tests would take place in just a normal office with, um, with between a, a partition and, you know, so, I mean, you can imagine you're like in an office chair with your pants around right your ankles, you know, sitting with a button, listening to this thing, you're there, like the guy doing this is right next to you. You probably hear him breathing. And I mean, I don't know. It, it seems hard to get down with my dogs watching. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let alone all that stuff. Going yeah. On. So it's not the sexiest setup. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's that. And then, so, uh, you know, the, the PPG, the phallometric testing and the ABLE uh, give us feedback as to like sexual interests, you know, kind of what, what uh, arouses these dudes, but it's, it, we don't do a ton with that information other than maybe use it for like safety planning. And, you know, if, if we're looking at doing some type of reunification with minors, you know, you can use that data for, you know, understanding that, but like, we're, we just don't do a whole lot of arousal reconditioning or, or any, I guess I should say, you know, the, the kind of the most we go with that in, in treatment is we, 
you know, when, when we were talking with these guys about, you know, what they fantasize about when they masturbate, you know, we're strongly encouraging them to not like think of their victim while they masturbate or to think of underage people. But, but by and large, a lot of the, you know, kind of the aversive conditioning stuff has just not been found to be super effective. And so we, we get these results and, uh, and then it's, it's kind of like, again, for safety planning, it's, it's useful, but in a sense, it's sort of filed away as we focus on risk factors that have, a, a, you know, a better chance of the client actually moving the needle on and changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's tough to change what you're sexually aroused to. Mm-hmm. No, just it, even if you're super motivated, still, what, you know, whatever trips your trigger is probably gunning for life, you know? Yeah. That, and that kind of was one of the questions I had for you on the episode about porn. You guys talked about helping clients increase their arousal for healthy mates. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? How do you do that? Well, that's a good question. Um, not through pornography. <laughs> it's, it, and here's, here's the reason why is um, like, I always put it like this. I just, I just say like, okay, you take the three of us and think about your, most recent sexual encounter. You don't have to talk about it because I mean, whatever, that's what I'm going to talk about, but just think about that. And then think if somebody was filming that and then think if they posted it on Pornhub or something like that, there would be exactly two viewers and one would be you and the other would be your partner. Nobody would care because our sexual interactions are relatively boring compared to what you're going to find on like a traditional porn channel. Right? So while yes, you know, I think, so I'm not, I don't demonize porn. And I, and I, I think it's like, a, when you start getting into the morals of pornography, I think it starts taking away from, from, uh, talking to clients about the practical implications that can have that pornography can have in their lives. If you start getting into morals, people tend to tune out. They don't pay attention to these things. Rather, if you just talk about it in a practical matter, you know, like with firearms or something like that, um, then we can have a real conversation about how this is negatively impacting their lives. And what I would say about the pornography is, you know, those, those uh, it's everything that's designed in pornography is designed to do its job exactly as it's intended to do, you know, which is provide a fantasy um, and that's highly sexually, you know, arousing that, that you can imagine yourself being in. I mean, I, I know nobody's watching porn for the plot. Uh, so, and, and it is, it's completely unrealistic. And I think in a lot of ways to me, um, if they're using it for, I mean, and again, nobody's watching it for the plot. So I assume every client of mine who's watching this is using it for masturbation and they're masturbating, manipulating brain chemistry and reinforcing images and fantasies that just have no basis in reality. I mean, we've all seen them and they're fun to talk about, you know, the pizza delivery guy. And she's like, did you put extra sausage on that? And then next thing you know, they're off to the races. You know what I mean? But those, those are, those are sexual encounters that are just not grounded in reality. And um, in addition to that, I I mean, you know, we, we try to talk to them a lot about uh, you know, what arousal looks like in terms of their masturbation practices as well. Um, And, you know, there's no, we never really, we try to talk to them and counsel them. Of course, if you're reinforcing, thoughts about, you know, uh, uh, a sexual offense or, of course, children or anything that involves, you know, weapons or force or anything like that. Let's try to get away from that. But, um, you know, recently there was uh, an example was there was a uh, 
it was like a Victoria's Secret, like, uh, uh, I don't know, show that was on at the prison. And a lot of the prison officers, as well as other, I don't know, educational people that were there were like, no, no, the sex offenders can't watch this. And I'm like, well, why? Right. What? It'll trigger them. Trigger them to do what? Like, I mean, do you think it's going to be bedlam back in the in the dorms? Like, what trigger them to do what? Masturbate to those images. I'm like, of adult women. So hold on, they're, these are attractive adult women that they're going to go back to their beds and masturbate to in their own minds. Like, okay, I mean, like, good, good. Like, that's that's excellent. Like, they're they're taking what they believe to be an attractive individual. And they're using, because I mean, if you think about sexual fantasies, if I ask a client to describe that to me, I, I kind of chalk it up to like an ESPN highlight reel of all of our sexual encounters that we've had. And then, da, 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 da. Yeah, and then we yeah. kind of, you know, superimpose an image of whoever we're thinking about onto that. And then, you know, and then all the rest of it. Right. So that's uh, to me, I, I don't see a problem reinforcing what would be an otherwise healthy sexual encounter. And, you know, the only question sometimes is, is, well, did that person consent? And I, I say, well, I don't know. Did it appear as if they were enjoying it in the fantasy? To me, that kind of is implied consent. Um, not to mention, this is a fantasy. Like, you know, where, and, and, and yeah, you're probably not hooking up with a Victoria's Secret model, but at least it's your own thoughts that are based on previous sexual experiences that you're now using. And then, you know, hopefully this is going to manifest behaviorally into a real sexual encounter for these individuals. Cause I mean, uh, I think the best antidote to deviant sexuality is healthy sexuality and the more of it, the better. Nice. That's a good point. And, you know, the other thing I learned from that episode that you had mentioned Mace was uh, that there's actually a bigger dopamine release from watching pornography than having sex with a human being. Yeah. 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 So there was That's wild. And, and, the, I mean, part of it is, I, I think about uh, what you're, I think visually again, well, so think about all the senses that are involved when you're watching pornography versus when you're having a normal sexual encounter. A lot of sexual encounters for the most part are in the dark. And it doesn't mean that you're not wanting to look at your partner. And this isn't for everybody. I'm saying a, a lot of them in the dark, you know, um, and there's Kenny not plan. Yeah. 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 Kenny G playing in the background. That's right. And not to mention nope. like my image of what's happening is, is really very focused in on this one individual with whom I'm having these relations. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas I can pull up, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, you, you know, the five porn stars going to a frat party and turning into a, you know what I mean? Like complete debauchery. Visually, that's incredibly stimulating compared to even some of the, you know, wildest sexual encounters all of us can have with one consensual partner. And then on top of that, you know, it's it's not as if the the models or the stars that are in this are hideous. You know, they're all incredibly attractive. Everybody's, you know, is looking good and their camera angles. It's so manufactured that that's why the visual stimulation supports that. And then also, I mean, the ease of use. I mean, you know, there's, there's no like, Oh, I'm super tired, babe. I got to get home to get to bed or, or, you know, geez, it's getting late. You might need to leave toots, you know, or however, whatever that conversation goes, it's simple, like click cam done and mm -hmm. we're out of here. So 
there's just the convenience and anonymity and, and ability to view all those things tend to be what drives those kind of dopamine surges that we see in those. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder too, with COVID, like loneliness, a lot of people at home by themselves, like there's, there's increase of, at least from what I've heard from some of my clients of going on those cam girl sites where you can actually talk to them and the only fans sort of blew up throughout the pandemic. Oh yeah, it did. Um, Dude, yeah. The, if you were to manufacture like a globalized high risk situation that would increase the chances for sexual reoffense, like COVID did it, you know, everybody stays home, uh, financial problems go through the roof, which boosts, you know, these dudes stress through the roof, you know, proximity to potential victims, everybody's cooped up, uh, you know, relationships kind of going to shit. You know, a lot of times when you're when you're on top of each other, you know, even the most committed couples can start to bother each other. And just so like, I'll, especially when you're on top of each other, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like tailor made for there to be some pretty, pretty big problems. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that and I, I'm not the only dude to say this, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, a few years from now, we're going to really start to see some of the, some of what's been going on this past year, you know, actually kind of manifesting and coming down the pipe and, you know, coming out legally. Hey, I, I, I'll bet you that we get an uptick in the statistics, mm-hmm. unfortunately, for sure. Yeah. And I'm curious what, what you guys have been seeing and, and just on the note of porn, my, my PO buddy had a, a really good acronym that they use uh, called the can rule. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. So he talks about with his clients, sexual offending clients, um, the can rule. So if you're going to be engaging in activity or watching pornography, you follow this CAN. So C is for consent. Um, A is for age appropriate. And the N is for nonviolent. Mm-hmm. Sort of so like sexual age appropriate, nonviolent. Yeah. So, so real quick on that, like, uh, are, does Canada not have a problem with uh, offenders looking at pornography? Do they have a problem in Canada? Yeah, like can can sex offenders up there look at porn? Yep. Yeah, and oh, there's no real okay. way to monitor oh. that when they're on probation or anything. But um, okay. just sort of something he teaches he because he does a lot of program delivery and and uh, relapse prevention. Um, That's a good acronym, though. And I mean, I I don't know if we well we probably would exercise that. And I, I think Jeff and I kind of share some thoughts about this. Is is you know. So porn use, to be clear, I mean, to anybody listening to that, we know that there's no there's no uh, empirical link between porn use and recidivism. OK, so that's porn use is see, and some people don't even know why they give such a shit about it sometimes that, you know, like they do. They Moral freak out. Stigma. Well, there's that. But but the other thing is, is is so from from our perspective, porn use sometimes is a symptom of another risk factor which does have some empirical research for recidivism which is sexual preoccupation so if if an individual see this is where it becomes because it's for the most part prohibited by all of our clients and we measure that typically through the the polygraph and basically what what we end up doing here is we did i just say okay look if if it's if it's not a problem, then it shouldn't be a problem. What I would say to any person that says, "Well, yeah, I'm I'm going to face a criminal sanction if I engage in this behavior," and it's clear cut and everybody knows it, 
And this if, is any porn, Mace, like any even consensual, age-appropriate, non-violent porn is totally off the, the table for... Well, okay, so so yeah. uh, you're not going to get in trouble for watching like an R-rated movie with with sexual content in it, um, mm. necessarily. Not always. Not always, sometimes. yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes it kind of depends, again, kind of how you're using this, because this goes, this harkens back to an actual risk factor that, that does have some, some truth to it. Because here's the thing. If I, if I tell you, if I say, okay, Matt, you're going to be put on probation. And guess what? If you look at porn, we're going to violate that probation and send you back to prison, right? Or, or violate your parole and send you back to prison or give you some sort of sanction. Okay. Now we can argue and talk about the merits of that argument and, 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 Clients, I, you know, in terms of morals and all that, I, I say, yeah, I'm not going to argue with you about that because I'm just saying it's a rule that's in place. Now, if you are so sexually preoccupied that you cannot stop thinking about sex to the degree that you are engaging in a behavior that would otherwise take away your freedom, that's a problem. That can be any any behavior, though. I mean, as silly as it is, if somebody said, Mace, you're not allowed to eat Sour Patch Kids anymore or we're going to send you to prison – I'd figure out a way to give up Sour Patch Kids. I'm pretty confident I would, right? And so I'm saying if that, it could, it could be an an symptom of a client being so sexually preoccupied that they would otherwise disregard a rule that's universal and sacrifice their freedom as a result of it. Now, that's a problem. Like, to me, that that says, that, that is a a lack of control over a thought process, some impulse control. Um, Again, we start talking about the health and morals of porn that it turns into a useless argument at that point, because I, more often than not, I'd probably agree with people that, yeah, I mean, so what? I mean, it's Mm -hmm. people engaging in a completely legal activity and, uh, the the vast 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 majority of people who watch pornography don't commit sex offenses, and it's not correlated with risk for recidivism. So what the mm-hmm. hell do I care? Well, and I guess this might be a stretch, but the argument around like helping clients increase the arousal for healthy adult interactions, and, and mm-hmm. I don't know, that's probably a stretch. But so it's really black and white there. Well, like, are you kind of going the route of like? If, if we're trying to increase arousal to, you know, a, you know, adult women or adult men, just consensual, whatever, that masturbation through watching CAN level pornography would be a way to increase that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like maybe I, it, what, that maybe, that maybe that study's been done. But that, that's what's interesting about one of those questions that you pre-sent to us. Like, like and we don't have to, we, we can come back to this later, but just the whole idea of using sex dolls, mm-hmm. you know, for the same type of thing. It's, it's one of those, especially like, you know, minor sex dolls. So like, I guess whatever it is, if we're, if we're talking about either creating healthy sexual uh, arousal patterns or satiating a deviant need through either, you know, pornography provided it doesn't turn into an action or through, uh, you know, a deviantly built sex doll, uh, mm-hmm. you know, satiating that, that drive. Like I, I really don't know how to think about that and I can make an argument both ways and I'm not aware of research out there. It might exist, but mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, when that's, I was that's weighing on my mind a bit. 
Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I mean, initially I was really ignorant to sex dolls and child sex dolls. You know, my initial thoughts was like, well, they're in their own house. They're not hurting anybody. There's no children there. But then as you kind of wrap your, you know, get into the sex dolls and how realistic these are, and you can literally customize the facial features, the size of them, their body shape, their skin color, um, and then you add in like AI and, and everything else that's going on. And it's, it is pretty disturbing, um, yeah. what, what you can buy. Mm-hmm. And I guess you guys kind of talked about that on that episode. Like there's a, a couple different theories, like there's, um, desensitization. Um, there's the aspect of like the, there's no consent with a sex doll. Mm-hmm. Um, there's objectification. And then there's this like distortion of fantasy mm-hmm. and reality and all right. that. Right. Yeah. And I don't know, it, it gets really complicated when you get right down to it. I mean, because so, okay. If, if you're talking about like, I don't know, somebody who has their own particular sexual, you know, uh, arousal, and let's say that is to a child sex doll. And let's say that individual goes out and buys that and then they bring it back to their home and they routinely go to town on it. Okay. Um, if they never have an interaction, the, the, I think the, I think the real, I, I guess the real kind of a thing that, that is where this becomes a problem is when you cross, when you've already crossed a boundary with the criminal justice system. Like if you, if that guy just kept doing his own business, I'd never meet him because he'd be doing whatever he's doing with the sex doll. And I assume there's a lot of people who do those things. Right. And to the last time I checked buying a doll like that, and do whatever you want to it is not illegal. Now, when you cross the threshold of now getting into, I've already committed a sexual offense, which is who we, you know who we work with, and then now I'm I'm our our number one objective. A lot of people think that sex offender treatment is about not creating new victims, and that's not true, because we're not treating people that are not in our office. That's not creating victims is is first of all a, a you know a future occurrence that may or may not happen. And not to mention that is taking our interventions and applying them to somebody that's outside of our office. The person that we care the most about is our client who's sitting in front of us. And our objective is to keep him out of the criminal justice system. That's our objective. And so we just have to recognize that whatever his sexual predilections were prior to this led him down a pathway. And who knows what the, the magic bullet is or the secret sauce is, but there's a total constellation of events that led up to his sexual offense. And we're trying to modify multiple aspects of his lifestyle because it's not just one thing. To limit it to just he was watching porn and that's what led to it, that'd be an oversimplification of everything. And so where we come down on this is, you know, yes, uh, you know, the consent thing never held a whole lot of water with me. I mean, it's kind of like I sat in a group one time and the they were ragging on this guy that they found a Sports Illustrated magazine in his in his uh, the, uh, the swimsuit, the swimsuit edition, edition, right? And uh, the this is a, a therapist, and she was really getting down on him that he should have had the model's consent to masturbate to them. And I'm like, huh? I was like, I pro- I'm pretty sure those models count on you masturbating to them, and that's <laughs> their paycheck. And I'm not, you know, and not to mention. 
how creepy would that be? You call up, you know, I don't know, Kathy Ireland and go, Hey, Miss Ireland, you mind if I rub on out? You know, <laughs> yeah. like get a restraining order. Yeah. Real quick. yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, and not to mention that's just weird. So yeah. that to me is, is, um, I, I don't, you know, those, I think if you're, you're, you know, I'm not the thought police. And so I think as long as that, again, that the, the, the fantasy appears to be consensual in their own minds. Awesome. The problem with porn, like I said, is, is an, over dramatic representation of what's happening, right? Like I see when I see like my children watch, I don't know, the Avengers and they want pretend like they're Thor. Okay. Well, adults watching porn and trying to like act as if that's the thing that would be a worry. Not that that's exactly what they do, but it gives them an unrealistic expectation of what's going to happen in the sexual encounter. Not to mention it. It's, it's incredibly convenient and their social skills, most of our guys, are dog shit. And that will not help their social skills. They're just going to sit home and, and the novelty of socio-pornography, the never-ending novelty of pornography and the anonymous – and it's and it's free. If you're paying for porn, you're silly. But, like, you could just sit home for the rest of your life and never have any social interactions and, and be just fine, um, But and which is also okay – the one problem that we have is this guy already committed a sexual offense. So he's capable of doing that. And that puts him in a category that's much higher than anybody else who's not committed a sexual offense. And so we take that into consideration. And, you know, Jeff and I have completed guys that told us flat out, you know, I'm going to look at porn when I'm done or guys who have looked at porn. And we've kind of said, you know what, I don't think we should hold this guy back from completing because this just really isn't an issue. There's so many other areas in his life where he's completely functional. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so it's not, yeah, it's not like the a killer by any stretch. And we're able to navigate it pretty well. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty universally against the rules here yeah. while they're on probation or parole. And do you guys, I mean, personally, do you agree with that, that rule? Like that it's universally not okay to watch porn um, on, on probation or parole? Like, do you see the bet? Like, is there clear benefits or or evidence that you guys have seen that that's been beneficial for your clients? Well, it's actually not worded that way, right? I I, I get concerned. So, the sexually stimulating material related to my particular deviancy. Yeah. So that's the language that is used: is sexually stimulating material related to my particular deviancy. Okay. So, so there's a so, connection to their their. Well, friend. it's. Here's the thing. It's stated that way. And like, so uh, what we're talking about is on their probation agreement, they'll have, you know, 20 different rules they have to abide by. And one of those is I won't consume or possess any sexually stimulating materials according to my particular deviancy, including but not limited to. And then it has this whole list of like computer, internet, text, magazines, ham radio, you know, like <laughs> all, all these different methods. <laughs> and, and so when it's like, to my particular deviancy, you'd think like, okay, you know, if my sexual offense was with a 12 year old boy, then I need to not look at pornography with, you know, 12 year old boys in it. And therefore kind of making the case that it would be okay to look at adult women and kind of go the route that you were talking about earlier, Matt, with the, you know, reinforcing healthy sexual behaviors. But the thing is the way that it actually, that's how it's written, but the way that it gets applied is kind of like a universal condemnation of pornography across the board. And and here's the thing, like for me, from a programming standpoint, since it's a rule that's put in place by 
the folks that we have to answer to, as well as the clients, you know, the people we have a contract with, we enforce it. And we don't come at it from the angle, the the no point. We don't come at it from the angle of, you know, the slippery slope argument. We don't come at it from the angle of it's going to make you reoffend. We, we come at it from the angle that Mace mentioned earlier with, uh, you know, it's the, the compulsive sexual behavior. You know, pre- you know, sexually preoccupied and kind of the level of impulse control. And if they can go without looking at pornography, we're able to draw some conclusions that, all right, when it comes to sex, this guy has the ability to pump the brakes as evidenced by not looking at pornography for X amount of time. He, you know, he's shown some ability to manage that risk. And so we kind of roll with the rule originally, but, and I, I can only speak for myself here. I, I'll let May speak for himself. Like I'd be open to, that rule relaxing a bit, at least in terms of how much trouble some of these guys can get in when they do look at pornography. Things have uh, loosened up a little bit the last couple of years, but I can think of like dozens and dozens of clients that were looking at age-appropriate pornography and ended up back in prison because of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I would be open to that relaxing. That relaxing, for sure. I'd be totally open to that. And, and just moving it more towards like a, a clinically based decision. I, I understand that sometimes that the parole officers or probation officers need to act in accordance with community safety. Fine with that. I'd be the first to tell you. Um, but that's why I, I don't know if, you know, I don't know, slipping up and watching Portahub once is, is a testament to a lack of community safety. So yeah. And if it got to the point where it were, I mean, we always tell clients like, you know, we, we, we don't hold back violations. They've signed an agreement where we have to report violations, but also for some of these guys, if they get charged with another sexual offense, um, you know, they, they, in a lot of cases, you know, give them a life sentence and that's not acting in their best interest. And sometimes kind of pump, them pumping the brakes on these things is helpful too, but mm. it should just, in our opinion, be more of a clin- kind of clinically based decision. Yeah. Well, and further to that, I guess, for some clients, I'm sure it's a coping mechanism or self-soothing and taking a break, I guess, gives them opportunities to build new tools that you guys are are teaching them or helping them yeah. to, to learn. Sure. And we always and we always say, you know, sex, sex should be used for one thing, and that's pleasure. Like, you know, I mean, of course, making babies, but we're just saying we're saying, you know, if if your emotional regulation strategy when you're angry is to masturbate you know, I get sexual pleasure from that. Or when I'm sad, I masturbate, I feel better. Okay. You're kind of co- coaching your brain to go down one pathway. And I mean, it, I'm damned if it's not effective. I'm just saying that I'm just saying that sex should be used for pleasure and, and that'd be the end of it. So if you're masturbating for pleasure, awesome. Have at it. You know, I mean, th- there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Um, and that, that's a big reason why, you know, sex is involved in terms of a relationship that and celebrating the relationship and all those fun things that people talk about. But, you know, we, again, we try to stay away from, um, I mean, unless a client's really working on that, where they're saying, I don't want to masturbate anymore. And they're kind of determining that for themselves and we help them out with that, but we're, we're not against it whatsoever. And, you know, uh, porn typically is just fuel for masturbation anyway. So it just, yeah, at a base level, I think the, the, the real trump card is the fact that they have committed a crime that has victimized another person. And so we have to take that into consideration when we're thinking about them watching porn and some of the implications there, but for the most part, it can be worked around. And well, Matt, like, like you were saying, in order to find out if they are using 
masturbation for a purpose other than pleasure and making babies that they're using it, you know, to, to cope with stress or loneliness, often loneliness, then we're not going to fully know that until there's been some abstinence from that behavior, which is kind of what I think you were, you were, you were getting at. And so that, that rule to create that, you know, no pornography, you know, when clients stick to that and they have some emotional regulation problems crop up as a result of not having pornography as their fallback coping, it's that allows us as therapists to come in and, you know, give them some shiny new tools. To yeah, that's these. a huge, huge opportunity for you guys and for that's them right. to notice that what that gap is doing for them or not doing mm-hmm. for them anymore. That's right. uh, you know, the other point you guys made um, was around porn-induced erectile dysfunction, which mm-hmm. if there's ever a reason to maybe cut back, <laughs> that might be it. That's um, the one that'll get their motivation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's quite a bit of controversy behind that. The, the main guy, the proponent of that, uh, Gary Wilson, who's done a lot of research and stuff on that, um, he just recently died from something or other. I, I don't know. I was, he, it's, it's funny. I, I know another colleague of mine that um, gets into internet wars with him. And I was like, maybe he died from a broken heart because he was mean to him. <laughs> but, uh, but um, yeah, I've had at least two clients with whom I've worked and, and that see, I, I think the, I mean, the, the, I don't know if there's, you know, hard and fast science, pardon the pun, that says this for sure is a thing, right? We've referenced it because it was brought up, but I have had anecdotally two clients um, that I've worked with that had that issue that they, and they had um, a, par- a partner with whom they, they were attempting to have sex with and they could not get an erection. And even after they used uh, one used Viagra and one used Cialis, they still couldn't get an erection. And then once they looked at porn, it worked. Everything was back to normal. So anecdotally, I think it makes sense. And scientifically, I think there's some evidence to support that. I'd say, I don't know exactly what mechanisms are at work at this point. And I think a lot of the the research that we've looked at, they're, they're drawing some decent conclusions. I just don't know if, if they have enough evidence to back up and support exactly what they're saying. There may be some psychological issues, I think, that uh, whether it be anxiety-based or whatnot, that they're still driving this and that need to be addressed. And so it might be more of a symptom rather than the cause. But mm. nevertheless, I've, I've seen it in at least two of my clients where it's been a major issue. Yeah. One, of, one of them went back to prison because he watched. Because he couldn't get an erection. <laughs> yeah. His PLO jumps in. Hey, freeze. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, he, no, because he, he viewed, it wasn't illegal pornography either, but it was, um, it was not very tasteful. We'll say that. And anyway, he, uh, he got an eight year rehearing. So he went back to prison for eight years. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty unfortunate. So yeah. And he had a life tops. I mean, his, his original offense was pretty egregious, but, Mm. um, nevertheless, yeah, it's, it's a problem for sure. Yeah. One of the things we're shifting in Canada, maybe it's happening everywhere is the language around child pornography. We're really getting away from calling it porn because that sort of normalizes it. So now it's really known as child sex abuse images or, or videos. Um, yeah. Yeah. A little bit. I've heard it, um, a few places and I I mean, I, I, I get it. Um, I mean, words do have power and, 
you know, if if people are trying to draw a distinction between, you know, reserving pornography for that would kind of fit in with this uh, CAN acronym that you're talking about to separate it by calling child pornography, you know, images of child sexual abuse or whatever the, whatever it is. I, I, I can see it. There's, there's a lot here. Here's kind of the weird thing for me in, in our field, there's, there's kind of historically uh, a real scripted way that people need to talk. And um, we've, we've kind of pushed back against that historically, like, like, like for instance, um, but he's talking about the way clients talk, right? the way clients, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the way clients are allowed to talk in therapy. There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for example, you know, a, a client that had a consensual, well, consensual sexual relationship with a, you know, a 15 year old female, you know, if not for her age would have been consensual. So she was cooperative, cooperative. Yeah. She, she would have, the client would have been required to say, I forced my penis into her vagina. Um, and, and, and so it, you know, you can't clients couldn't say things like my victim, because that assumes ownership. It's a person that I victimized and th- those types of things. And there, there's a million other examples that I could give to you. And uh, that, that's been something that I've pushed back against. I feel like it, you know, scripted treatment just turns people into really good parrots. You know, are you like kind of interrupting them as they're talking and reframing it for them? Like in this, I've, sort of- I've never seen a, <clears throat> I've never seen a smooth way that that happens. Typically the client will be maybe in the middle of explaining you know, uh, what, what, whatever it is, maybe they're giving a disclosure of their offense or just talking about something and uh, the therapist that then cut in and interrupt the client and make them rephrase it. Lest they be removed from the program for not using the right series of words. Um, I, I found it's more disruptive than anything. And, and again, clients just learn to tell you what you want to hear. doesn't make for really a genuine experience. And so we, I've gotten away from, worrying about having them say the exact right thing. Um, I get this one though. I, I don't, I don't mind the difference between child pornography and yeah. images of child sexual abuse. And, and part of, I think also the reason we've gotten away from that, like, Hey, only tell me the things I want to hear is also because I, I think it makes it difficult to measure progress. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, they say crazy shit. Well, of course, I mean, that's why they're in, if they were only going to say the right things and do the right things, why the hell are they in therapy? Like that, that doesn't make any sense. So they're here, they're, they're here to have, uh, you know, within reason, you know, I mean, they can't just murder somebody next to them. Like, well, that's why isn't that, but you know, like that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that they're going to make mistakes, but you know, six months from now, my hope would be he's talking about those things in a different way, but I wouldn't be able to measure that because if I, and I've seen this happen, you know, They'll they'll get threatened. They're like, Jimmy, if you say it like that again, then you're kicked out of this program. You're excused from group today. Now go home and think about what you did. And then they come back the next time and they say it exactly as it was intended. But the problem with that is is all I've done you all I've done is do a power play to you, and 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 really manipulated you into telling me what I want to hear. You don't really believe that. Like you're just doing it, and you're like, oh, okay, this guy's an asshole. And he's threatening to kick me out of this program unless I do X, Y, and Z. Not super effective, but I, the only the only criticism I'd have on some of these things, because like uh, with youth, they don't call it like like they've gotten away from sex, like they've turned it it got into sexual behavior problems, and then it turned into I think nowadays it's maladaptive sexual behaviors. Uh, can, 
let's just make them shorter. Like, yeah, that's you know, a mouthful. <laughs> so if it went from child porn to child sexual abuse, like, oh, that's like two more syllables. That's like, <laughs> how can we get it shorter? Like, yeah. just make it one, one word, you know, like bad porn. Yeah, corn. <laughs> corn. <laughs> yeah, just I mean, just, I I don't know, just yeah. uh, just being lazy there. But yeah, that's the only thing is sometimes I catch myself, and hopefully, I think as as a professional field, yeah, child sexual abuse or images of child sexual abuse is is much more descriptive of of what's actually happening there because even pornography traditionally, a lot of people think about video and the bulk of you know. But, the child pornography is not videos, images that people have, you know? So mm-hmm. I'd say it's worthwhile to move away from that, that statement. I've, I've certainly worked on that. All, all my assessments typically say things like that too. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you guys are talking about kind of the scripted protocols and, and sort of being really uptight about language, it makes me think of a client I had and I just have kind of a generalized practice. So sometimes I'll get somebody come in and say, you know, I have anxiety. And in this case, it's like, I, I'm, I'm depressed. And then as we get going, it's like, well, actually I've been, you know, exposing myself sexually to people. And I'm kind of like in the middle of, uh, you know, uh, work with them. So I'm having to consult with other trained you know, folks like yourselves. And, um, one of the things I found by just kind of providing that open space that I would to most clients is that's typically, at least with this client, where I would discover a lot of his cognitive distortions, where there was just this open form. And he's telling me, you know, like they, they like, they like it when I expose Mm -hmm. myself. And then as we kind of dig into that, it's like, well, why do they like it? And he said, well, because they're looking at it. Yeah. Right. And, and so like giving them that open, that room to kind of just talk and, um, and this is an individual practice, but I imagine right. in groups too, you get those cues where you're like, okay, well, that's something we want to come back to. There's a distortion. How um, open are we talking though? Like, did he expose himself to you, Matt? Not to me personally. <laughs> I didn't fit the demographic. <laughs> no, but what you're talking about is, is precisely what we're trying to do. You, you limit your ability to measure those cognitive distortions um, if you limit your language that a client can say or not say in those sessions. And then if you do that, you you are basically putting up a barrier for any of the interventions that you need to put into place and, and also helping them generate replacement thoughts that are, that are a little bit more balanced for those things, you know? So, I mean, the gentleman you're talking about yeah, they are looking at it because that I've had exhibitionists who said the exact same thing and, you know, they're, and I'm like, well, yeah, you know, so is there another way of looking at it? Yes. They're looking at it. Yes. It's exciting, but they're probably looking at it because this is sensational, you know, more than likely because you're a stranger, they're, you know, disgusted. And is that a better way? Can I balance those thoughts out? Which is exactly what we don't want to think, have them think the opposite because that's just silly you know, telling somebody this isn't exciting at all. This is, this is a hundred percent harmful to other people. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it is exciting. That's why people are doing it, but can we balance that out with some more, you know, realistic replacement thoughts that are actually going to move the needle to, to motivate you not to do those things. And if you don't provide that open space, then they won't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just a quick aside here, how much time do you guys want to do like 10 more minutes or what, what's your thoughts? Yeah. 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 Sure. Whatever you need. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of wanted to get into just talking about trauma, um, the intersection with trauma, sexual offenders. 
and just kind of understand a little bit of the nuts and bolts of the approach that you guys use in, uh, in your individual work. Um, so I guess maybe first off, what have you guys found in your work in terms of the clients that you have that are sexual offenders or, or that have been and their trauma history or maybe lack thereof? Do you find a, a connection? I couldn't give you a percentage, but it's pretty dang high, you know, that they meet some clinical threshold for, you know, dealing with trauma. And, you know, it's kind of the usual circumstances that we'd expect, you know, childhood sexual abuse, physical abuse, witnessing domestic violence, you know, a lot of those life history factors that are common. And one that we might be a little more uh, hidden that what we've seen a lot of is the People that have been to prison when they when they get out of prison, they they have some trauma from the experience of being incarcerated, and it, it looks a little different, manifests different, and sometimes it's not something that is easily identifiable. Um, but yeah, there, that that's been I guess uh, I don't know if unique would be the term, but I'll use a you know a more unique form of trauma specific to uh, these guys that are that are coming through the system and. You know, uh, our treatment approach has, you know, shifted and changed and adapted over the years that, you know, we've been a, a business. And I mean, we once upon a time, we had an entire treatment level devoted specifically to, to trauma. And yeah, I don't know, it's trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy is, you know, it's uh, it's pretty effective. Um, I'm not personally trained in EMDR. We have a few therapists that are, I still don't get why that works. <laughs> Witchcraft. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Apparently it works. <laughs> yeah. It seems crazy, but it, Hey, you know, the research shows it's legit. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So, yeah. It's, it's definitely a component to, to what we're doing. Yeah. There, there was a, there was a, a study that was published by uh, the, and hopefully I'm not butchering this here, but it was published by uh, the department of justice and they had, estimated that, you know, around 65% of the clients that are entering into a program like ours have also experienced some form of sexual abuse themselves. Um, now, the trauma component, probably a little bit higher than that, because that would be all forms of trauma. Um, and that was obviously in their sample. So, I mean, you know, extrapolate that how you will. But in terms of our approach, we certainly it, traditionally it's always been kind of looked at like old school therapy was like, we don't talk about your trauma. We don't talk about your issues. You're here for what? And that doesn't do much That's good right. because it doesn't really dial into the reasons why they committed their offense in the first place. So we've gotten away from that um, in the past, I don't know, 15 plus years or so that, yeah, this is a crucial component to again, our, our objective is we're trying to keep these guys from in, further engaging in high risk behaviors that are further involving them in the criminal justice system. And a side effect of us being successful is that they're not committing new sexual offenses. So, yes, no more victims is a, is a result of what we do, but it's not our goal. That's just a side effect of, of us being successful with our clients. And part of that is addressing whatever they bring to the table, which is sometimes trauma. Dude, I'd forgotten about old school treatment, having that idea that you don't get to work on your trauma. You're here because you traumatized someone else. Take right. care of that in your own time. Right. That, 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 that really was the philosophy for the longest time. It still is. And, you know, I'm sure with some providers, well, it's just, done a you bit, know, a bit short-sighted. Bit of research on the old school methods. And it looks like it's sort of like shame-based. 
Oh yeah. It's yeah. And I, and I guess, so you guys do get into their trauma history then and you make those connections and like, what a great opportunity, especially if they're not really understanding uh, the impact on the victim to, to go back to when they were a victim. Yeah, I guess. Right. That's an, yeah, and it's, it's something that we uh, screen for in our initial assessment. We have a, you know, a, just doing a typical, you know, assessment and some of the um, LEC. Yeah, the uh, LEC 5, which is the Life Events Checklist 5. Yeah. Um, PCL. And the PC, yeah, the PCLC, which is the, that's the uh, Post Traumatic Checklist Civilian. Thank you. So those are ones that you, those are uh, put out by the Veterans Administration in the United States. And those are good measuring or kind of good measuring sticks as to, as to, uh, so trauma is kind of tricky though, because I mean, it's kind of a, a fun word in, in our field these days, you know, are you trauma informed and all this stuff? Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And like, you know, I'm sure, do you, I assume you guys have to do continuing education up there at CUs. Okay. And I go to conferences all the time and I'll hear somebody say, you know, if all of us took the ACE test right now, then we would, you know, however many people, well, the ACE is the adverse child childhood events checklist. And well, yeah, life sucks. I mean, welcome. To, yeah, we've all been there. So all of us have something, but it's not just that. Like we have to say, do you have a history of it? And then do you do do you have uh, symptoms associated with that history that are at least within the last thirty days? And are those symptoms causing an impairment? That's what we really dial into and try to figure out. And so our work really asks the question: Is did that history and symptoms and impairment? have something to do with their offense or is it having something to do with currently impairing them, um, you know, that, that we need to address. And if so, then we address it, you know, but if they just simply had hard lives, which a lot of them have, but have no real symptoms right now, then, then we keep walking and we, you know, we kind of move on to, uh, what, what's more, what is more, uh, prevalent and driving the risk in that person's life. But if trauma is it, then that's it. Gotcha. Okay. That's interesting. So high prevalence of, of your clients that have been traumatized, at least, I guess we've all had the ACEs at least scoring on somewhere on there, but likely higher for those clients. Sure. Yeah. Hey, what, what do you, what do you have going up there? How do you guys address trauma? Um, well, I mean, in our practice, we're a private practice. We're all EMDR uh, certified. Clinicians. Oh, yeah. So, so, you know, yeah, so we primarily, that's our, our main approach. Um, secondary approach, I guess, for myself is emotion-focused therapy. Um, so, you know, typically we're doing attachment and trauma history within the first, you know, three, four sessions and uh, really starting to target some of those things that are affecting them now. Um, that, not for everybody, though. Like, there's people that just want to learn anger management strategies or anxiety tips and stuff for anxiety, depression, stuff like that. So, right. Yeah. I, I'm I'm fascinated by the research with EMDR and the like the efficacy of it as a like and, and at one point or another like I've I've gotten into this with Jeff before about talking about research and and all these things and kind of proving points and at one point or another um, I'm just like yeah damn that's a it's a it's a solid it's a solid therapeutic practice and then any anytime we like we we 
joke and call it witchcraft, but uh, it's still it's probably just because we're too dumb to do it. Like, because, <laughs> yeah. because, yeah, I, but I, uh, but no, the ones who are trained, the ones who are trained, uh, art clinicians who are trained, um, I mean, the clients swear by it. And I mean, it, it's had some really good research. So, what, what, what's the, the basic theory behind it? Like, as to why the movement and yeah. how that, I mean, I mean, is it, you know, because I've read things that is kind of like gets to the end. It's like ultimately we don't really know, and I'm like, but is there is there some good science behind it as to what's happening yeah. there? Yeah, the way I kind of explain it, this is the quick Coles notes, is that typically when something really upsetting happens, traumatic happens, it, it overwhelms the brain's capacity, the ability to kind of process and put that information, store it properly, and typically kind of gets stuck in the right side of the brain, very emotionally driven, a lot of negative beliefs are developed, like, you know, my parents got divorced when I was six, if only I would have got gotten along with my sister more, maybe it wouldn't have happened, right? So that self-blame or shame, whatever it is, stuck in the right side, it lacks a lot of the logic from the left side of the brain. So yeah. the bilateral, whether it's eye movements or the, like we use a lot of the ta like the buzzers now, especially yeah. with COVID, it's yeah. helping to reconnect the right and the left side of the brain, similar to the REM, like what's happening in our REM cycle of sleep. Um, I didn't know that's what happened with REM cycle yeah. so we're naturally yeah. processing events and, and stuff from the day in our week but with trauma it just overwhelms the REM cycle just can't can't process it can't digest it um so yeah. the other components so it does incorporate cbt um there's a lot of like mindfulness elements to it you're it's quiet so you're doing these 30 second sets approximately and, and you're not talking to the client and they're just inside noticing all the things that are happening and then when you stop the set you're you're trying to get them to to talk about you know what what do you feel in your body or what kind of emotions are you noticing or what thoughts are you having so you're you're also Com trying to activate three main parts of the brain at the same time um, okay. to help them to work through process, make sense of, um, and all ultimately desensitize those images and memories that are, that are so upsetting that they're used to avoiding altogether. Okay. The right and left hand side of the brain. And what's the other one, the third one? Well, sorry, like the three parts, like the frontal cortex with your thoughts uh, and then limbic system with your emotions and then brainstem with kind of your body, body sensations. Oh, okay. Cool. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that, that's a, is it true? I heard once upon a time that the developer of that came up with the idea because she was, uh, had her own sense of trauma. And as she was walking and looking at the sidewalk and the things that were, that she was like the, the slats in the sidewalk like the you know as you're walking through them that she noticed when she thought about these things and looked at those images and, and her eyes were moving that she felt better about that is that true really? that's true that's true oh, i don't yeah, know about wow. the sidewalk okay. piece but i know she was walking and looking left right and yeah yeah yeah, yeah i think I she was, was an observant lady holy crap I yeah mean, i would never okay. put that together yeah they're like you know <laughs> that's gotta give her credit wow okay yeah i heard that i don't even know where i heard that from but yeah okay well, that's cool yeah. Yeah. So, um, but just kind of looking at the time here and, and, um, sure. I appreciate you guys talking to me and, and going through all this. Let's, yeah, this was fun, man. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do this again. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to close with these questions. I think uh, a lot of people appreciate these kind of tips, especially from seasoned, you know, vets like you guys, 
you guys see a lot of shit, a lot of hard, you know, and hear about a lot of stuff. What do you do to, to manage, prevent, mitigate burnout, vicarious trauma? Well, I, so I don't really know how to explain this first off, but like for whatever reason, when I hear crazy stuff or something horrible or horrific abuse, or, you know, a client does something really messed up, it, it, I don't have to consciously switch my mind off of work mode and go into home mode. I'm, I'm lucky. Maybe like I, it's never, I mean, obviously, you know, I can react to what I'm hearing and acknowledge, you know, you know, horrific abuse when it occurs, but it's, it's never been, I can't relate to the idea of taking stuff home with me. And I don't know why, but just maybe in a more general sense, uh, I need exercise anyway to, to function optimally. My wife knows if I missed a day or two at the gym, whether it's, you know, on the mat doing jujitsu or lifting weights or, or running, preparing for a freaking trail run. Um, it's, uh, I, I get grumpy. I, get just kind of downcast. I need to move. It's like I, you know, have a very sedentary job and it's like I, all this crap builds up just, just from sitting and, and uh, I've got to go, you know, blast that out through, you know, doing some heavy deadlifts or something, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, so that question comes up often, Matt, and I answer it very much the same way. So I'm not, I'm not a, you know, jujitsu expert like Jeff or a practitioner, but I do a lot of endurance, uh, endurance, uh, events. So Ironman triathlete, here. right. And, and ultra marathons and, and a lot of, and I lift routinely too. Same thing. And if I don't go to the gym now, Jeff and I, I mean, we're a couple of meatheads, of course. So, so it's different. So the one thing I'd say to that is I'm not, I'm not encouraging people to do those things because that seems overwhelming and, and not that we're like special. I'm just saying that's our thing. And I think the fact that we do it so much and so passionately speaks to the level of self-care that's necessary to work in this field. So I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's, I mean, if it's yoga or meditation or whatever it is, you need a healthy dose of that on a routine basis in order for those things to do. So I think it's incumbent on everybody working in this field to find whatever that self-care strategy is and you need to do it. You need to do it often and do it routinely because if not, um, you know, I, I think you're, you're leading to the point where, yeah, the work can be overwhelming. The other thing too, is I say, you have to be humorous about this stuff. Like our, when Jeff and I joke around, if we're in like a public setting with other people, it, it's like gets dark fast and it's hilarious to us, but other people not so much, but we have to keep a sense of humor about what we do. So that's the other big component of this, because if you don't have that, then yeah, this it's just, and, and, and also lastly, know your limitations. This may not be the right field for you. And if you, if, if you know that you just don't work well with felons, please do them and you a favor and just work with a different population. It's, you know, that, that, that would be my advice. That's solid advice. And outside of that, is there any advice, tips, wisdom you'd give to new social workers that are considering going into forensic psychotherapy? Hmm. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, it's not difficult to, you know, dip your toe in the water, so to speak, and get an internship within these institutions because this, there's, there's not 
as much of a dichotomy in terms of talent in this therapeutic field than there is in any other discipline, in clinical discipline, in my opinion. This, this is either the island of misfit therapists or people who passionately care about doing this work. So you have a group of therapists who otherwise have burn bridges or just don't do well in other populations. Of, ah, maybe I'll give sex offenders a try. And then they come here and they don't do well, right? Or you have, uh, you know, what we fancy ourselves to be as people who genuinely care about this population in terms of making our community safe and helping them become productive members of society and so on and so forth. So you're going to know early on, if you can get into this field early on with a little bit of experience, whether or not you love it or hate it. And if you've determined for yourself that this isn't for me, then, then that would be a good mechanism to kind of tell yourself, okay, maybe I ought to get my energy in a different lane and, and go that route. Yeah, that's a great answer. There's no book to read. I mean, right. <laughs> that's you just, yeah, just dip your toe in the water and see how it is. Yeah, that's, that's a, like 100% endorse that. And the one other, I guess, in the same vein, and not everybody's going to have the ability to do this, but when, you know, we kind of going back to the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about some of those line staff jobs at group homes. You know, and I didn't start as line staff at the group home that we were talking about, but I worked as, I was called a, a tracker, which is a lot more ominous sounding than it really is a mentor, basically working with. Sounds like a bounty hunter. It does, yeah. And kind of uh, working with tough populations from a non-clinical perspective before getting into the clinical perspective made me a better therapist. I think that, you know, therapists that, let's just say, started out, working as a line staff where you're eight hours a day with some, you know, group of knuckleheads is it, it's going to give you invaluable experience. It'll so much better inform your, your uh, understanding of the clinical side of it. Once you get into it, a lot of times therapists that go from, you know, their, their job as a photographer or whatever <laughs> and into in, right into being a therapist are, are missing a big chunk of, I think, what it takes to um, have the, I guess, the, the mindset and the maybe the talent even to to do that that line of work. Yeah. So getting it, getting in kind of on the ground level, I guess, if, if that's an option of for, you know, that's doable for you would be smart. That's awesome advice. And I guess just to close it off, um, grill a social work podcast that's just one offshoot of what you guys do how can people find out about alpha counseling if they want to touch base or consult with you or or learn more about what you guys do what's the best bet yeah we have a very modest website you can find it at uh utah's best therapy.com so that's uh that's our, our website of course you just googled alpha counseling who, who actually inserts websites anymore like when was the last time you typed that www yeah exactly nobody so if you just search alpha counseling and then um our contact information is there uh of course our emails are really easy jeff at alpha counseling.net mace at alpha counseling.net and then of course you can find us we have a youtube channel and uh gorilla social work podcast yeah g U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A, not not the gorilla, even though we have a picture of a gorilla in the background. It's very misleading. <laughs> yeah. Still picture, though. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, pretty good stuff. Yeah, great marketing on the website. I love that. Mace, you have no bio. 
Jeff's. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, is, what does Mason say? It's something like a one-liner. It's straight. I did, that, I did that deliberately. Um, <laughs> it was it was funny. There there was a there was a therapist one time because I, I think when we did a bio on me, we just miss misunderstood. Like I think we just misremembered the years. Oh yeah. So so it, this is how silly it was is we had put that I had done 13 years of work versus 11 years of work. And one of our colleagues like found that and was like, you, this is fault. Like you were lying. And like, I'm like, well, hold on. First of all, like who cares? I mean, it's a minor mistake. So then I was like, okay, just as I just put on a therapist, that's it. So, (laughs) so ever since then I was like, and it's actually, uh, it's actually, I was, I was, I was inspired, um, uh, to, to, uh, Jeff's wife because she talked to, I was asking her about, she does my hair. Shout out to (laughs) to the the look salon. She, um, she told me, she told me, I asked her, I was like, Hey, how come I never see advertisements for Redken, shampoo and conditioner and she says this product speaks for itself it doesn't need advertising so i was like huh, there it is. this product speaks for itself <laughs> i don't need awesome. advertising so that's why that's why my bio is only one line <laughs> i got much more but i don't put it on there leave some to the imagination yeah yeah less history more mystery baby <laughs> oh man well, it was great talking to you guys thanks again for coming on the show and yeah, of course, man. You just need to reciprocate. We'll we'll hit you up and do some talk about EMDR if you're cool with that. Sure. Yeah, we could talk about group homes all day too. I'm sure. Nice. Hell yeah, that'd be <laughs> awesome. I got a couple stories I spared you today that I could get into. Yeah, that's Beautiful. awesome. Uh, yeah, the, the conversation went smooth. I'm sure there's plenty more content we can turn out between the three of us. Hundred percent. Absolutely. So. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, um, I'm hoping to put this out next, like a week from Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not great. I, uh, What's that? I was just going to say, how do, I, how do I access it? Yeah, I'll send you. So I'm not great with social media, but I'm trying to get better. So I usually kind of pump it up the week before. I'll pull out some quotes and stuff, and I'll send it all to you guys beforehand. You mm-hmm. can have a look, and then um, I'll send you the link. It's on Spotify, Apple, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Just called Social Work Me is the podcast. Okay. Easy enough. Okay, cool. Yeah. And thanks for listening to the Gorilla Social Work Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Moore and Mace Warren. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all things related to forensic psychotherapy. As always, you can head over to utahsbesttherapy.com to check out our program and check out all the links and resources in the show notes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and wherever you prefer to get your listener fix. Please share this episode with your family and friends, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating, which really helps us out. You guys are awesome. We'd like to stay in chat longer, but we're lying. Good night.